but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This episode entitled, Forgive Me Yannick, For I Have Sinned, is a bit of a hodgepodge, a potpourri of sorts. No real rhyme or reason to the order of the agenda. We're just going to talk about folks who've been playing well, folks for whom that good stretch of tennis has led them to possibly the year in championships. And we'll start with Annette Kantovait. I will tell you, I spent some days being very annoyed by this because <laughs> because of her run of late season good form, Annette Contevate has knocked out Anshabur from the WTA finals. And to be fair, it, no player ever owned that final spot, but it looked like Jabour was going to get it. But when you look at what Contevate has done over the past few months, it's hard to be annoyed because she surely has earned it after a very long season. It's a... Uh... A stunning run of form. I don't know how you do justice in in describing exactly what she's done since even from before the U.S. Open. Yep, she won the new Cleveland tournament right before the U.S. Open. She's won 26 of her last 29 matches, starting with Cleveland. And the runs were impressive because she's beaten good players. You know, it's not like... Oh, you've beaten sort of the dregs of the tour at the end of the season. She's gone through some very high-quality players. Ostrava was probably the most impressive, beating Badosa, Bencic, Kvitova, and Sakari. Two of those players are already in the WTA Finals. Two others had the, the potential to qualify as well. She won Cleveland, then Ostrava, gets to Moscow, wins that, and then has to play the very next week and win that in order to maybe knock Jabur out. Yes. She plays in Transylvania, in Cluj-Napoca, and she needed to beat Simona Halep in the final in order to qualify. And it is very difficult to beat Simona Halep in Romania. And throughout her run in Transylvania, Anjabur is keeping keeping track of things. As it heads into championship weekend, she's uh, the Twitter equivalent of hyperventilating. <laughs> Having some tongue-in-cheek fun with Contivate. And in Contivate's victory speech, she apologizes for Jabur because at that point, there was nothing she could do about it. Right. And it was kind of getting ridiculous, right? What can Annette say other than, I simply cannot stop winning. I don't know what's going on, but I keep winning. It might be a little tough to swallow for Ons because it's not like the wheels fell off of her season either. Right, She had a great showing at Indian Wells, reaching the semifinals. She was the runner-up in Chicago the week before that. The only thing more she could have done, really, is win a match or two in Moscow. But uh, she's had a great season. Her ranking will finally start to reflect the great strides she made this year. When you say great strides, we heard a lot this year of Anjabur being the first Arab woman to do this. The first to make a second week of a Grand Slam, the first to crack varying levels of rankings. Now she's in the top 10. When you have her make so much news throughout the year, you kind of take it for granted. Well, obviously she's going to make the year in championships. And on top of that, she beat Contivate quite a few times this year. And by that, I mean twice. She beat her in Cincinnati <laughs> as well as Indian Wells. It's rare, but it's not unheard of for players to go on crazy runs like this toward the end of the season. Carolyn Garcia comes to mind. Mm. Andy Murray, obviously, the first time he reached number one. Well, the first and only time. But it does remind you that the season is not over until it's over. Even when most players are totally exhausted and just want the thing to be over, there's somebody fighting to snatch your spot. In this time of year, you typically have folks who played well early in the season, not able to sustain into the fall and then you have folks who, while everybody else is banged up and struggling, they've gotten their second wind. Or maybe their first wind for the season. <laughs> right. A couple episodes ago, we started keeping an eye on what 
the road to Guadalajara would look like, what the actual field in Guadalajara would look like. When we learned that A, the tournament was actually going to be held, and B, that it would be held in Mexico. We were looking down the race ranking, seeing who could pop up from that 2030 region to maybe make the field. And only one person did that, Paula Badoso. She came roaring through winning Indian Wells. She was somewhere like number 18 before Indian Wells and then finishes as the seventh qualifier. So the list, the eight women who will be playing in Guadalajara, the top seed will be Sabalenka, followed by Krejcikova, Pliskova, number four seed Sakari, Sviantek, Muguruza at six, Badosa seven, and Kantavate eight. Think about that for a second. The, the year that Maria Sakari has had, that with Ash Barty not playing, she had the fifth most points accumulated this year on the WTA Tour and will be the number four seed in Guadalajara. That's quite the achievement. She stumbled at the finish line in a bunch of tournaments, not really able to get the big, big win, but this look, look where she is. What can we say about this field? It's missing three of the four slam champs this year. Osaka isn't there. She didn't qualify. Barty would have been number one, but she chose not to play. And Raducanu didn't qualify. Uh, you know, there are some big absences. Barty because she pulled out. Osaka didn't play a full schedule. Uh, Sophia Kennan, had this been held last year, would have qualified. She's sort of MIA. We'll talk about that a bit later. It is representative of who played well this year, but not fully. This is not unusual, per se. There were many, many years where Serena didn't play, for right. one. It's, it's not unusual for folks to not want to play through mid-November. Mm-hmm. But I, I also say credit to these women because this tournament kind of came together at the last minute. And they're putting their hand up to make the most of it for their opportunity and also for the tournament itself. I know you're itching to move into this next section. You even came up with a title before we even recorded. That's how into this story you are. <laughs> I, I stress a lot over titles, so it helps my peace of mind to have one written already. Probably the biggest story on this side of the Atlantic this past week was Francis Tiafo's great run to the final in Vienna. So he is the one begging for Yannick Sinner's forgiveness? No. It's tongue-in-cheek, okay? Yeah, I know, obviously, you're not being serious when when you say that. I, too, was being tongue-in-cheek. I see. Okay. Sinner entered this tournament having just won Antwerp the previous week. A win at this tournament would have gone a long way <laughs> towards securing his, his place in Milan. Sinner ended up being one match away from getting to this final, back-to-back finals, losing to Teafo in the semifinals. For his part, Francis had done yeoman's work this week. He beat Tsitsipas, the number three seed. He beat Schwartzman, number 16. And then he came back from a set and 2-5 down against Sinner in the semifinals to win that match as well, before ending up losing to that guy in the final. Yeah, there's a lot to like about Francis's game lately, I think. I mean, we know that he can be improvisational. He has a charismatic game. He's willing to take chances. He's been moving toward the net quite a bit lately, but actually successfully. You know, the serve is beefed up. Well, mostly successfully. Right. Not all the time. He's gotten better in executing at the net as well. There's a lot of volume of net play with Francis (laughs) lately. Yes, we saw it at the US Open. He's just on a a much improved run of form over the past, say, six months. He's got a number of wins over top 10 players now. He's also generating a lot of buzz on the internet based on the fit of his kit. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It was a popular topic at the US Open, and he's wearing the same kit, and it seems to be getting smaller and smaller every week. Or is Francis getting bigger and bigger? I guess we will never know. Yannick, for his part, is uh, somebody who it is risky to charge the net all the time against. He's explosive on both sides. He just pulled a lot of forehands out of nowhere in this match against Francis. And it looked as if he was going to win in straight sets. At that point, it's not like it was an easy match, but it looked like he had it in hand. Francis turned it around, and 
unfortunately, what's annoying for me is that so much of the discourse about Francis's run has been dominated, at least on social media, by this accusation from Sinner that Francis went too far in being demonstrative, in uh, high-fiving spectators, into kind of putting on this show. And he felt that it was just too much. That at some point, what he said in Italian translated... Well, you don't want to read it in Italian? No, no. He said, in my opinion, TFO went too far today. He did too much. It's one thing when you put on a show. It's another when there is no respect. I don't know what happened, but today I think you went a bit too far. Okay. He just lost a match. He's pissed off. It does feel like a little bit of sour grapes. So I do want to discuss what he actually said and whether there was merit to it. Because the backlash is a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of, oh, Francis is fun. But once he starts to beat your fave, you might want to say once he starts to beat your white fave or once he starts to beat the white fave that you lust after and infantilize, then it becomes a more threatening proposition to have to deal with Francis Tiafo on a tennis on a tennis court. Because I think what's important is that Francis is Francis. He does this stuff frequently in matches and you can like it or not like it but if you don't care about it when you're winning but you hate it when you're losing there's some inconsistency there Mm -hmm. right he and Yannick have played before this year and Francis carried on in a similar fashion Yannick didn't really seem to mind I don't even like the phrasing of it as carrying on like it's not even that bad no like have we not moved past the puritanical expectations of what play on a tennis court should be and look like by 2021. Okay, well, here's the thing. Tennis is a sport that has this sort of enforced politeness. The the classiness, the kind of upper-class gentility of tennis has already has always been built into it. And so you know this from being a cricket scholar, basically. A scholar? The... That sort of ideology is baked into its rules. And a lot of tennis and cricket fans come to expect a, a very specific type of behavior from players. Right. But it's not the same in cricket because the West Indies team has been celebrated for decades because of how they play the game differently, how they've upended that expectation. Yet they've turned it on its head and added their own Caribbean flair. To the game. Yes. And that's celebrated. But at, back in the 80s, weren't they criticized for being too athletic? They threw the ball too hard, too intimidating. They weren't. They they defied the conventions of test cricket at the time. It wasn't so much how they played. I mean, sure, they bowled a lot of bouncers and whatever, but they were also physically more gifted than everybody else. They had some all-time greats that some countries would be lucky to have one per generation, they had six or seven in one team. You know, so it became, when you hear pace like fire, like it was a it was a firing squad of bowlers mm. coming at you. Like, okay. There was nothing nothing you could do about so it. So maybe my analogy is not that great. Okay. My point is that we know tennis is a very stodgy sport. Yes. And even we have indulged in sort of the, the policing of behavior and what's accepted. I mean, we do it with Novak, so I I feel we need to be honest that we have participated in that as well. Now, the thing is, this stuff is of such low consequence, mm-hmm. right? In the grand scheme of things, who does this affect? So Yannick did not win this match. He could have won this match. He did not lose it because of how Francis behaved. You don't and lose- I don't think that Yannick is saying, he's not blaming Francis for his loss of the match, he was being salty. Yeah, but after I mean, losing, which you, I understand. You hug at the net after the match, whisper sweet nothings into each other's ears, and then you whisper sweet bitterness in the press right. conference afterwards. So now, when I'm not around, you post up. Mm. Now you got something to say. I will make a distinction for me personally, and why what Francis allegedly does why that doesn't bother me is because it's playful. It's joyful. You say that we have a double standard with Novak. I want to draw that line 
Because when Novak is celebrating on court, having moments of levity and joyfulness, I don't begrudge people that. What I don't like is the anger. And overt shows of anger don't sit well with me. Right. Across all aspects of life Mm -hmm. and society. Which is also why I don't feel the comparison I've seen with Kyrios to be a very apt one. Because Kyrios does do those things, like he talks to the crowd, he engages very directly, all in, you know, good fun. But he also calls the umpires names, he spits on the ground, he abuses officials. That's different. Like, that's very different from what Francis is doing. I don't think Yannick knew that what he said was going to set off his fans and fans of other people to, to feel very embittered. Is that, is that who yes, you're talking about? Embittered and emboldened to attack Francis on tennis Twitter. I don't think he realized or meant for that to happen, but it did. So we got to talk about it. Because what I saw made me feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. How many times was he called a clown? A clown. Like, don't do that. You know, I, <laughs> I thought, I really kind of thought we were past the point of having to explain why you shouldn't do that why it's belittling and especially to speak about a black man like this it just it was very gross to me because it's almost like now you've been given the license to kind of go off on francis and people just went off they took that as an invitation and y'all's faves or some of them are either alexander zverev or besties of him so Mm. like which is more consequential to you well being a fan of zverev or being francis tiafo and the one of the clapbacks to that is well is there a difference because francis seems to be one of those people as well <laughs> based on what we saw in that final yes yes very buddy, buddy sitting down with each other on front one side of the of the changeover bench waiting for the trophy presentation Kaka, Kiki, Laffy Laffy. Yeah, we've known each other forever. Yo, bro, yo, yo, bro, you're the best. Alex is going to win tons of majors. Can't say I loved that. No, that was... uh, It took a huge sheen off of the week for me, (laughs) personally. Yeah. I'm just saying that in light of this great performance this week from Francis, it seemed like all anyone was talking about... Or, or the loudest people were talking about, oh, this guy's such a clown, he's such a bad sport. And it's just really at odds with, I think, what you see on court. Because it's very rare that you see one of Francis's colleagues criticize him in that way. And maybe it'll happen more often if he starts to win more consistently. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think what happened here, too, is that even his fans, even the ones who want to support Francis on a regular basis, across the board, I don't think... Many people took Francis Tiafo and his career seriously. Right. I don't think many people expected him to be able to turn out an, a performance like this, for him to back up wins over Sitsipas and Schwartzman, and then turn that center match on its head, and then also play that guy really tough in the final. There was a level of, as much as we talk about the joking around and the playing with the crowds or whatever, there was a level of seriousness with Francis's game. And the improvement in his game that did not gel with how, with how folks viewed him coming up to this right, point. Because right. this narrative of Francis being a clown is not new, necessarily. It was just used in a different way, a more mean-spirited way this week. Yes. And so you haven't been paying attention to the gains physically, mentally... And in his actual game that Francis has been making in the last few months, right? Mm -hmm. This didn't come out of nowhere. Francis had been playing better. He's gotten four top 10 wins this year. This could be the start of something. This could be the start of him being a player that a lot of people never imagined him to be. And maybe this moment, this uh, was a, a combustion of all those ideas of what we had of Francis Tiafo, along with him playing better he just you know built to this one boiling point and all this just kind of exploded and you know yannick just threw a little bit of lighter fluid on it right so i think there's some 
element of, oh, I guess, you know, that stuff is cute unless he's beating my faves mm-hmm. consistently. Now he's beaten Boss twice this year, once at Wimbledon. Uh, do you, you know, do you appreciate him only when he's an entertainer and not someone to be taken seriously as a threat? Because the signs are there in his career. He's gotten better coaching. He takes his career seriously. The results are showing it. It, it, the, I, I mean, just the discourse was so disproportionate to what we saw. And I mean, there are some caveats, right? Francis did admit that he kind of wanted to push a little bit to see if Yannick faltered mentally. And so, you know, you might be inviting the accusation of gamesmanship in, in that sense. Right. But if you are, for the most part, ready to return well within the time allotted well within your opponent's pace for the majority of the match if you can fit in those extracurricular activities (laughs) and still manage to do that what are we talking about right uh the the, yes sinner's rhythm was upset the tenor of the match changed part of being a professional tennis player is figuring out how to not lose from a set on five two up that's a reasonable expectation of somebody who is I believe now in the top 10. I think he cracked the top 10 for the so. first time. Yeah. And one of the presumptive next bests for the next generation, the next decade. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is a learning moment for you, sir. Yeah. And, and it's not that deep. And he even said maybe I should have engaged the umpire when I was annoyed by those things. Yeah, you should have. I mean, listen, I don't I don't want to get comments on Twitter after this saying that we canceled Yannick Sinner, because that is not what this is. This is just a commentary <laughs> on what happened. Yannick is a young player, and next time he may handle the situation differently. Maybe next time he will speak to the umpire. Maybe he won't give a very friendly greeting at the net. Uh, you know, maybe his annoyance will be very clear. I, I think that this will be a learning experience for him. And it's entirely likely that this wasn't that big of a deal for him. Uh, In actuality. Like, he said some stuff after the match, and I have to imagine it's, like, pretty much done for him. Like, listen, can you imagine the the things that you would say in press conferences if you lost a match like that? I would be hated. The things you would say even when you won matches. (laughs) If you were Francis winning that match, the shit you would say in press conferences. Right, right. This really is, is spurred by the out-of-pocket stuff that we saw from and and heard and read from other people. Yeah. Not necessarily and Yannick. Honestly, it's it's a big reason why I haven't engaged on Twitter like I used to. I've sort of lost interest. Not completely, because there are so many people on tennis Twitter who I really enjoy, but uh, it just feels like the same thing over and over again. Like, why are we talking about this? Same script different cast right and in this case many of the same cast as it turns out i don't really know the full hundred of the calculations and the the way this affects sinner's chances of making it to milan he's since lost in paris lost his first match in paris just like francis did they both lost their first match in paris and it seems like he has a very small chance of capturing yes. that eighth spot. There, there are some sites that said he's out of contention. I've also seen that he does have a slim chance if certain things go right. And I believe he would also have to win the title in Stockholm in order to have a chance. But as it stands, Casper uh, Ruud is looking really good in the number seven spot. And one Cameron Nori is still alive with a chance of snatching a spot booking his ticket to Milan. That's that's wild. Yeah, yeah. Horkoc still has a chance to qualify. Up until earlier today, Felix Ogieliasim had a chance to qualify, but he lost to Kupfer, who beat Andy Murray yesterday or the day before. Back to Francis Tiafo. He's up to number 25 in the race. In the, in the points accumulated in 2021, only 24 players have more than Francis Tiafoe. Yes. If that were the real rankings, that would best his career best ranking. Currently, he's at number 41 in the actual rankings. But this idea that Francis is not a serious player 
or as somebody not to be taken seriously, we need to move past that because the top 10 wins are there, the progression is there, the points are there. This is not a 2022 preview episode, but he's absolutely somebody to look for in 2022. Right, and this is not to say that he is definitely going to win a major or multiple. It's just that he does have the tools and it seems like he has the the direction to push him forward to the next level. Mm-hmm. The other piece of context with Francis that made this whole situation so volatile is just how much of a shit show the ATP is. In what sense? Um, <laughs> in the multiple domestic violence allegation situations that we've had to deal with on this podcast Mm -hmm. with the complete lack of response up until recently from the ATP with how so many of the top ATP players have been piss poor during the pandemic. You know, there's a lot of talk especially on tennis twitter and i don't know how useful this is to listeners if you are a listener who isn't on tennis twitter who isn't familiar with a lot of the things that we talk about or bring to the show from tennis twitter i wonder how much you enjoy this kind of stuff how (laughs) useful you think it is or if it feels like tennis twitter is really a niche and doesn't reflect the larger tennis watching public that's Mm. possible i think we're maybe a bit too close to know I mean, it's how we built the show yeah. as well. That's how we started. You know, it, we're so embedded there. It's it's hard to make a separation sometimes and to get a full grasp of what really is what, you know. But my point here is there's been a drive, a push, a need for somebody to save the ATP. That person for years has been Andy Murray. Is there somebody who can come... After him, who can succeed him and make us feel good about watching and supporting men's tennis again. And I think for a lot of folks, Francis Tiafo is a clear option. An unproblematic fave, save for his behavior in the end of that final. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's that. But it's also that whether certain people want to acknowledge it, he has a wealth of charisma, and he has star power. So Wow, that was such a dig. Whether certain people want to acknowledge it. At whom? One specific person I can think of. No, no. I'm talking in general. Okay, okay. Francis, uh, okay. Charisma is obviously a subjective thing. Mm-hmm. But I think that there are a lot of people in tennis leadership who are waiting for Francis to become a superstar. Because he would be incredibly easy to market he is gregarious he's funny he engages with crowds he has a a a perfect origin story you know that they love to you know they love to cart out you know there's been meetings where they've been they've been discussing you know yeah if only if if only francis could get it together you know we could tap into that that hip-hop urban market (laughs) right i mean we could get some of those nba coins (laughs) there are definitely people in the tennis powers that want the male william sister story okay like this is a kid who comes from humble beginnings he's down to earth he can market whatever you throw at him to sell Mm -hmm. like there are people who are waiting for him also you know we are inundated by western coverage of tennis right and there's always this push especially in the last two decades, where is the next great men's American tennis player? American, yeah. American because tennis Because where player. are they? We're talking, I mean, okay, we're talking about Brooksby, Riley, Taylor Fritz, da-da-da. There are a bunch of men right. in the top 100. And we've also seen a, a lot, lot of prospects come and go, right? Mm-hmm. Who had a good career but never quite crossed that hump. No, but my, and, my point is, of those many that currently exist, he is the one. For me, he's the obvious one to be the charismatic breakout star. Who could bring more eyes to the game? You need somebody to to reach out outside of tennis to bring people in. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, who's going to transcend tennis? Francis probably has the potential to do that. And I don't, 
I don't want to place all these expectations on him, but I think what we both mean is that if his career does get better and better and better, that will be good for people who stand to make money off tennis, but also good for the marketing of the sport in general. Right. So that this that's the context also for this past weekend for me, whereby folks who view him that way are putting that on him and are excited for the run that he had because they see the potential for all these things. Mm-hmm. Right. And then to be met with the clown emoji, <laughs> it's just it's crazy. It's, like, it's crazy. Whether you like it or not, he's charismatic and there is a vacuum post big three. Okay, the world is not going to line up behind a lot of these guys. Tennis Twitter will, but people outside of tennis don't know who the hell they are. Listen, we've long said privately, I don't know if we've said this publicly on the show, but really, all you have to do is be white. That's it. For people to be (laughs) thirsting after you. I tried to think of if there was some other criteria, because there was a tennis player that I saw a long discussion on Twitter the other day about somebody said unpopular opinion, but, or, you know, Mm. saying, I know some of y'all don't see it, but for me, this person is actually really hot. And it was mind, it was mind blowing to me. Apologies to that man. That's so rude. Apologies to that man. Obviously these things are very personal and subjective. It's just like, nothing is surprising. I mean, as long as you are white, there will be a very vociferous following mm. for you in the tennis Twitter community. That's that's what I'm saying. Exactly. It had nothing to do with this man mm. specifically. It was just an example. Yeah. I was going to say, if you can be infantilized or like cutified, mm. but there's actually no limit to who can be infantilized, no matter who they are. So I, I take that back. It's like these people are Jerry from the Durrells. And they're bringing in a new animal to his little personal farm. Do you think in anyone, do you think like one percent of people <laughs> listening even would know what the hell you're talking about? We've been watching the Durrells lately and uh, highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Which is like a British family yeah. dramedy. Set in Corfu. Right. Bruce. Yeah. Anyway, I thought you were talking about Jerry from Succession and her oh. little slime puppy. Oh. As she calls him. Wow. Roman. Okay. That also works, Is that not I the guess? best thing you've ever heard? A slime puppy. <laughs> no, but really, the, again, I come back to this question. Who can save the ATP and all I can... Uh, the, the candidates that have been put forward. Plagiarist has bladder problems that require multiple trips to the bathroom. One's an abuser, allegedly. allegedly. Multiple are terminally boring. Like... Probably a decade away from developing a personality. At least. Like, it's dire stuff. That's all I'm going to say. All right. I will say it was a a great, great lineup at Paris Indoors. And let me tell you, that's not something I frequently say about the Paris Indoors. But today there were some very exciting matchups. Andy Murray, you know, I don't know if you've heard, but he has a metal hip. (laughs) Fun fact. It's crazy, right? He's still kicking this guy. He's He is getting wild cards. If only he, tennis commentators would harp on the Zverev case when calling his matches the way they harp on Murray's metal hip. <laughs> right? It's like, I don't know if you've heard this, but... Um, so Andy, he has recorded some very good wins. He's had some not-so-great losses. He's a commonality had a, is that he's had a lot of long matches. He's had a lot of long, competitive losses against really good players. Mm-hmm. And finally, in Vienna, he was able to exact a bit of revenge against one of those players. One of his bugaboos in 2021. Mm-hmm. And also his mini-me, Horkacz. Somebody who looked up to him. So, having lost to Urkacz twice this year, he beats him in Vienna. He went on to lose to Alcaraz in Vienna. Alcaraz, who just beat uh, Yannick Sinner today. Mm-hmm. And then in Paris, Andy lost to Dominic Kupfer. Considering Kupfer beat Felix today, it wasn't like an embarrassing loss, save for having had seven match points and losing all of them. That's shocking. Uh, that match was wild. Andy was down a set and big, big in the second set. 
won at 7-5, held seven match points deep into that third set tiebreak, and lost every single one of them. After taking a wild card into Paris, after not being sure that he was going to play, to have this happen must be annoying, frankly. Yeah, that's one word for it. For his part, he's not discouraged about the progress that he's making. He says that he expects to make deep runs at these tournaments and eventually win. He just hasn't done it yet, but he expects that to happen. And if you're an Andy Murray fan, the heartening part of this is that he's been able to play so many tournaments consecutively, that he's not had to take time off, that the body hasn't given him trouble, that the hip has responded to these long matches. Those are positive signs for him to take into 2022. At some point, though, it would be nice for him to have a deep run so he can crack back into the top 100 and not have to deal with these wild cards. Yeah, yeah. Emiratu Kanu has won some WTA-level matches. She beat Herzog and Bogdan in Cluj-Napoca, delighted the crowd and her peers with a little bit of Romanian. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a cute moment for her mm. because I don't know if you've heard, not only is she British, but she's Romanian and she's Canadian and she's Chinese. She has many identities. And so she's got a large following in Romania She went to this tournament, had a lot of support, and was able to deliver. She lost pretty badly to Kostiuk in Romania. And Kostiuk is somebody who we kind of lost in this whole, like, WTA next-gen thing. But she is coming. She is still very much part of the conversation of that next generation. I think I purposely forgot about her because of the whole... Australia quarantine thing and that IG Live situation. Oh, was she Badosa's partner? Yeah. Oh. (laughs) That seems like so long ago that that happened. As as we said last episode, forgive, forget, you know. When they (laughs) petitioned the United Nations on IG Live for their inhumane treatment. To save us. In Australia. When truly the only person who needed saving was Putinseva because she had rodents. This is a follow-up for an ongoing story, one that will not go away. There is no chance of it going away until the tournament starts, I guess, or everybody's in Australia, and then we see who's not in Australia. Yeah, in the absence of an official vaccine policy from Tennis Australia, there is still some disagreement between the state and the federal level in Australia. The Prime Minister said... Players can enter as long as they quarantine for two weeks if they're not vaccinated. The premier of the state of Victoria says no. Well, you're getting ahead of yourself. How this really kicked off again was the leaked letter sent from the WTA to its players. Oh, God. have we not recorded we since then? We have not then? recorded since then. Oh, my God. And then Victoria Azarenka got all turned up saying that Ben Rottenberg was doing the most unethical work imaginable by... By sharing a document that had been leaked to him by someone else. Uh, Uh, I just had to laugh. This wasn't really worth getting upset about or anything because it was just amusing. Victoria is a very principled person. We know this, mm -hmm. right? Like, she's a very serious person. When she feels something, she feels it fully. I believe that she was wrong in this case. It is very common and considered a kind of a convention of the profession that journalists do reporting based on documents that were obtained. Um, I guess not on the up and up. It doesn't matter to a journalist if a corporation banned their employees from leaking a document. Has she heard of a whistleblower? Right. But that is that is not the journalist's concern. So take it up with your colleagues who right. less than two hours after this email was sent out was in Ben Rothenberg's inbox. <laughs> right. And, you know, if the WTA or any organization this large sends out a document that in is... In this digital age. And that is this interesting. Timely. It is, it is going... They know it's going to leak. Everybody knows it's going to leak. When you have fools everywhere, us included, on this beat, <laughs> trying right. to figure out what's going on. Yeah. It's, it's, folks want to know. It's, 
It's needed information. So this is confusing, right? Because the WTA memo said, okay, it looks like you don't have to be vaccinated, but if you're not, you do have to complete a two-week quarantine like last year. However, Dan Andrews, who is the premier of Victoria, which is the state in which the Australian Open is held, is saying, no, no, we, we don't want you if you're not fully vaccinated. Because the federal government can say one thing, but it's still down to the state to decide if they're going to file for an exemption. Right. That's my understanding. So, and Dan Andrews said, that ain't happening. It is confusing to me uh, because we don't know a whole lot about Australian law. In the U.S., for example, the federal government controls immigration policy, not the not the state governments. But Tennis Australia also hasn't released their official vaccine policy because they're probably a little bit confused as well. Novak Djokovic and... I don't know if they're confused or if they're just <laughs> frantically working behind the scenes to Hope, get yes. special treatment. Well, probably that. Novak and Medvedev are both non-committal. Officially, they have not committed to Australia uh, in the absence of kind of a clear direction from the Australian government or the ATP, I think. Novak does not want to talk about it anymore. He said he's not going to address it until he knows for sure what the policy is. Mm -hmm. He said in the past that he's not taking it now, he's not getting a vaccine now, but if it comes to a point where it's needed for him to do his work, then that's a, a different bridge to cross. Yeah. And that bridge might be being built right now. <laughs> right. To be clear, he never said he was against all vaccinations. You know, when that whole controversy erupted last year, it was unclear if he was talking about this vaccine, all of them, da 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 But he did say, as you said, if it became required for him to do his job, that would be a whole different conversation. Mm. John Millman member of the ATP Players Council, says that the unvaccinated players deserve a chance to play. Now, in this case, your initial reaction might be, dude, what the fuck? But this is kind of also how a player's council should work. In yeah. that yeah. he is tasked with representing the interests of all his players. And if, <laughs> if like we know, a large minority of them at this point are unvaccinated. That's a lot of players. And so mm. he is, I guess, being a voice for them still trying to be able to play, I guess. But at the same time, it is an atrocious look. <laughs> well, it's a, uh, regardless of his personal opinion, you're right. He is supposed to represent the opinions of the players. Of course, not all the players are in agreement, but having been a member of a union and working with unions in my professional life, I know that behind closed doors, a union might be like, yeah, we're totally in favor of this vaccination, but in the public, they still may have a responsibility to represent their members. Mm -hmm. And in today's episode of A Broken Clock is Correct Twice a Day, <laughs> Benoit Pair was quoted as saying, those that are not vaccinated, I don't care about them. If they don't play, all the better for me. Meaning he is vaccinated. <laughs> yes. Initially, this was surprising because I usually expect the worst when Benoit speaks. However, it has he has a certain internal logic. An actual clown on the ATP. Yes, an actual, an actual one. Benoit's internal consistent logic is that he is 100% self-motivated. So if being vaccinated helps him achieve over others, he will do it. <laughs> if that allows him to enter 50 tournaments and lose second round in 50 tournaments, <laughs> that is going to be what he's going to do. It was very funny to me because now that he's vaccinated, he's like, I really don't give a shit about any of those guys. I think I'm going to have a really good year. Wasn't he patient zero at he the US was. Open he in was. 2020? And I think... It seemed, based on what he said, it kind of informed his current opinion that, first of all, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to be that person again and have to live through that bullshit. And also... Not necessarily be the super spreader, well, but right. be having to... Have to endure. <laughs> the hardship and the suffering. And also, if I can gain an advantage, 
on my colleagues because they don't want this vaccine, then I will use that advantage. Mm -hmm. So this story is still developing. We'll keep an eye on it, as per usual. We had a Twitter follower pose a question to us. This is from at Dorset Dryad. Where is Sophia Kennan? And I thought about it and I said, good question. I would like to answer it. So last we heard really from Sophia Kennan is that she pulled out of the U.S. Open and then Indian Wells, the U.S. Open due to her diagnosis of COVID-19. And she's also got this foot injury going on. She hasn't tweeted anything since August 25th. She doesn't have a particularly active Twitter presence, but we haven't heard much from her. She did a, like a sponsored promotional tweet for Motorola, or not a tweet, uh, an Instagram post the other day. Wasn't she the one who was promoting some phone company and then the tweet said sent from iPhone? Perhaps, (laughs) possibly. Uh, So she did do like a promotional Instagram post a few days ago. But other than that, we have heard very, very little. She really keeps undercover. Was it this year that she had appendicitis at the Australian Open? So she was the defending champ at the Australian Open. She loses there, gets appendicitis, undergoes surgery. She got COVID. She dropped her dad as a coach. She's got this foot injury. She has had a hell of a year. And uh, to answer your question, where is Sophia Kennan? I don't know. We're not always the ones to go to when it comes to questions about player camps. We barely can keep track of player coaches, who's coaching whom, <laughs> let alone physios and like the complete makeup of these top players' teams. And a lot of folks are out here being able to name all 10 members of the team by first name, know their cousins, know... They know who's doing the tweetings. They know... <laughs> uh, that That's not us. However, this week, we got some dispiriting news about a member or a former member of the Williams's camps. Yeah, Esther Lee was one of the most recognizable and consistent presences in the teams of both Venus and Serena, acting as their physio for six years, I think. Traveled with them extensively and became a very close family friend. She, unfortunately, was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer uh, after having really discovered that something was wrong. You know, she's a physical therapist, she's very attuned to her own body, Yeah, so what is so awful about this disease is that it's very often caught later when it has metastasized. You know, she's stage four, which means it has moved on to other organs in the body. Serena did a post promoting this this LA Cancer Challenge 5K that they participated in this past weekend. And Serena was really emotional, had trouble getting through the, the post. But it was great to see Serena and her whole family do the 5K with Esther. We just wish her the absolute best. This is just an awful thing to hear. In other Williams family news, the trailer for King Richard has come out. And I did not expect this film to be so legit. (laughs) Like the trailer was excellent. And it seems to be getting the Oscar rollout treatment yes i was crying through the trailer will smith is considered one of the favorites for the best actor award i know it's early but it got wonderful notices at telluride film festival anjane ellis who is an emmy nominee who is in uh what's that monster show monster lovecraft show? country okay. which one uh, just a phenomenal actress playing orsine price the young girls who are playing Venus and Serena seem so well cast. I'm so hyped for mm. this movie. Well, back to tennis Twitter, or I should say local tennis Twitter. <laughs> Have you seen just how many mostly white women who are saying, imagine a film about Venus and Serena's incredible story and they center a man? Yes. And, you and they know make what? the movie about a man. And you know, if, like this would be accurate, an accurate call out in most situations. So I, I 
I appreciate that you've paid attention to what the template of this critique is. Right. But the specificity that's required mm. here does not apply. Somebody said, like, imagine if you made a movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband. I'm like, yes, but, like, that wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, I don't. We don't need to explain to our listeners why Richard Williams has a film <laughs> made about him. Also, bottom line is Venus and Serena are producers on this film. This is the way they wanted this story told. Right. They see their story as a Williams story, one that is inseparable from Richard Williams. And so it's really none of our business. That's the way yeah. I look at it. And I also think that the Venus and Serena story will be told and told again after this film. We've already had two documentaries. We've had Being Serena on HBO. Uh, This is is not the end of the sort of fictionalization of the Venus and Serena universe. Mm. If you want to have a discussion about whether there are troubling elements of Richard Williams' life that aren't going to be represented in this film... That's another discussion to possibly have at another time, should you be so bold. Sure. But unfortunately, a lot of the people levying the criticism about a man dominating this story don't actually know any of that. Mm. We spent probably a good few months mocking Jared Donaldson on this podcast. Sometime in the 2017s yeah, or 2018s. It maybe wasn't, wasn't our, our greatest hour. I mean, we've had many poor moments on this show in our seven years. That was probably Which one. is why, like, it makes me laugh when people say, like, oh, you think you can do no wrong and you know everything. It's like, listen, if you knew what was going on in my head, how many times I criticized the words that came out of my mouth. Also, we say repeatedly on this show that we don't know everything. And... If we have been wrong in the past, we do try to correct it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we had we poked fun at Jared because of that supervisor mm-hmm. outburst. However, that has no bearing on just a very, very rough few years that followed that. Mm-hmm. He's been dealing with this persistent knee injury that's kept him out of tennis after being really one of the, the chief prospects mm-hmm. among American men. Michael Lewis, who's been on this show before, he wrote in the Providence Journal... A while back, I think at the U.S. Open, and I only now just discovered it because I was like, what's going on with Jared Donaldson? Or I think I had seen somewhere that he may not play tennis again. I was like, can that be right? He's probably still so super young. He is young, but it's been quite a while since we've seen him. And so I googled him, and the only hit was Michael Lewis's article. And in it, we discover that he's had multiple situations with his knee and indeed he may not play tennis again he's actually enrolled at uc berkeley and has taken steps to forge a life outside of tennis yeah so it seems like he hasn't ruled out completely a return to the sport but in the meantime while struggling with this injury why not go get another degree Mm. i don't know if you know this about us but we watch some well personally i watch one Real Housewives franchise. No, you watch two. Oh, that's true. I watched two. Atlanta. And Salt Lake and City. And Salt Lake. That one's new. It didn't really occur to me to yeah. think of that one. So we watched all of Atlanta. And that's been the only one that we watched in our life together. Right. Up until Salt Lake City and all that batshit crazy stuff was happening. And so we very much watched that one. And Jen Shaw is about to be arrested next week. Looking forward to that. (laughs) Um, But you, on recommendation from CC Smooth 13, CC Snaps 13, CC One Smooth, Now Smoother 13, after he was suspended, (laughs) Chad. Why you gotta loud him up like that? Uh, Uh, On recommendation from Chad, you have been binging Potomac. I've flown through Potomac. Love it. Mm-hmm. I have not watched any of it. All I know is there's this one woman who looks like Robin Givens. A really light-skinned Robin Givens. That's all I know. Oh, I think that's Ashley. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ashley was messy until they invited a new, more messy, way meaner version. This was not an invitation Her to talk about the show. Her name starts with a C 
for those of you who know. This was not an invitation. Okay. What you were getting to. What I was getting to is that there might be a third for me, a fourth for you, because The Real Housewives of Miami is getting a reboot. I think it was last on air something like seven years ago, and then they just stopped producing it. But it's coming back. And this incarnation of Housewives of Miami is the only one with a same-sex spouse. And (laughs) that housewife is going to be Julia Lemigova. And her spouse is none other than Martina Navratilova. And so this just has mess written all over it. It sure does. I will not be watching Miami. I'll, I'll watch the scenes with Julia, maybe. But uh, no, I, I cannot take on a new Housewife franchise. They, I wonder if we're going to get scenes from their little farm in Florida. They have a little chicken coop and like all these animals in their backyard. Mm-hmm. You know, um, not really interested, if I'm being totally honest with you. Okay, that's, Ye- that's fair. Julia has uh, quite the Wikipedia page. She mm-hmm. has lived a life. And I don't want to make light of it because she has endured some considerable tragedy in that life. But some stuff will make you go, oh, oh, wow. And why, why are you not watching this? Is it because of Martina's transgressions? Her what? what? hmm Um Do you see what I did there with the plan I see, word? Yeah. Yes, maybe. And also like I just I don't need another housewife franchise. I don't I don't watch the white housewives. If I other than Utah. We we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I mean this will be pertinent stuff to the podcast, potentially. A couple things that are extra tennis, external to tennis, to finish this episode. Timely stuff for me personally and my interests. The ICC Cricket World Cup is going on right now. The T20 World Cup. And while my beloved West Indies team looks pretty much dead and buried after losing their first two matches in horrific fashion. Oh. The story that's pertinent to this show, I think, is the Quinton de Kock story. Uh, I yes. explained this to you a little bit as to what was going on. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Quinton de Kock, South African wicketkeeper. He's captain South Africa on many occasions, often opens the batting in limited overs cricket, in 50 over cricket, and especially in 20 overs cricket. A mainstay of the South African cricket team at all levels for the last, uh, what, five to eight years, I would say. He stepped in it. He really did step in it at this tournament because before the team's, I want to say, second match, could have been the first. I see this this alert that comes up saying that Quinton de Kock will not be playing in today's match due to personal reasons. I was like, well, damn. And then I find out shortly thereafter that his personal reasons were that he did not feel that he should be told by the cricket board, by the South African cricket board, to take a knee in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. It was mandated by the board ahead of that match, that everybody on the fielding 11 should take a knee in solidarity. And this just blew my mind. It's truly one of the wildest things I've seen in this era of sportsmen and sportswomen participating in Black Lives Matter activism. And the team said, if you don't kneel, you can't play? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so the history here. The reason why South Africa plays cricket, the reason why West Indies plays cricket, the reason why Zimbabwe, why Kenya, why... Bangladesh. All these places, right? (laughs) The only reason that they play cricket is because of colonialism. Yes. Because of racism. Because of an economic system that was devised and deployed to exploit black and brown people all over the world to subjugate them, to imprison them, to enslave them. And then you look at what's going on in South Africa. South Africa was banned from international cricket for something like 15 years because of apartheid, maybe even longer. They were only readmitted into international cricket by the ICC in 1992. And after that, even after that, even as recently as this year, there's all this racial strife and turmoil within the South African cricket setup with former players involved, with 
current selectors involved with questions being raised about people like Mark Boucher and people involved in the current setup, what they did while they were the South African cricket greats in the 2000s. You know, like this is not an issue that hasn't been front and center in South African cricket. And they've gotten a lot of pushback and flack for it. They've initiated a quota system in the selection process, whereby a certain number of black South Africans have to be selected at all levels. And Quinton de Kock being somebody who's captained South Africa, which means he has had intimate interactions with the South African cricket board. He's been in on selection panel meetings. He's aware of the the quota system. He's aware of what it means to be a black person in South Africa. His captain at this tournament is a black man. He has black teammates at this tournament, yet he decided that because the South African cricket board was mandating that he take a knee in support of Black Lives Matter, that he was going to say, how dare you tell me what to do? It was the most childish, stupid thing I've ever seen in cricket. Ever? In cricket. Uh, Really? He released a pretty long statement after he didn't play. And he's, I mean, it basically boiled down to, I don't like to be told what to do. That's all it was. It, you know, and it was like, oh, I'm not racist. I I have black family members. I'm sensitive to this issue, but I will not be told what to do. I mean, there is a conversation to be had about mandating the kneeling and how it's maybe no longer a revolutionary act when it's institutionalized. Like, that's a different conversation. I'm not sure that we're there yet. <laughs> Cricket was one of the first sports, international sports, to resume in the middle of the pandemic. It started with England and West Indies playing in England. That spurred Michael Holding's sermon, essentially, on the, the, the experiences of black people in society. Not just sport or cricket, but in society. Cricket has been kind of a leading force in sport when it comes to grappling with BLM and moving forward and, and hopefully making changes. And so this was a big misstep. It was abhorrent. Congratulations two-year racist baseball team for winning the World Series? Uh, Yeah. If you had told 11-year-old me that I'd have to wait 26... Oh, no. No, no, no. I'm not going to give away my age. 20 redacted years to see another world title. I'd have been like, I do not believe you. One, because of how great those 90s, early 2000s Atlanta teams were. But also, I would not have believed you... If you told me, I'd be kind of indifferent to it or so conflicted about it. I mean, we watch, I watched more baseball this week than I have maybe ever and enjoyed, enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. It's just like, stop, stop doing the chant and the the tomahawk thing. What is it? What do they call it? The tomahawk chop. Chop, right. And Donald Trump and his stupid wife came and did, you know, did a little bit of racism and then went home. Why are they there? Why do I have to look at them? It's embarrassing. The team needs to be renamed. I've long said that they need to be named the Atlanta Hammers after Hank Aaron. Right. That's my suggestion. So obvious. It's so obvious. And I mean, if you must, if you're beholden to the chopping motion, you can chop. You can swing a hammer. <laughs> you know, right. it's a, it's the easiest transition that we can make here. Yes. And it's just embarrassing, and I don't know how many leaders of Native American tribes, how many organizations have to tell them that it's not okay, that it's offensive, that it's exploitative, that it's appropriative for them for it to seep through their heads. The Cleveland Indians renamed their organization to the Cleveland Guardians. They did? They did. Oh, and I mean, the Washington football team was the most famous culprit. Mm -hmm. They've... They're now the Washington football team. Right. They don't have a team name no it's just the washington football team which i i kind of like it's kind of like the the what is it called the russian tennis federation now because they're not allowed to be called russia i have no problems with that (laughs) i i now will refer to atlanta as the atlanta baseball team Mm. it gets to the point Mm -hmm. after that tangent we are going to wrap up the the finals on both tours are right around the corner and our season will be wrapping up quicker than you think Probably not. We're probably going to be recording into December because the tour feels extended. Then we have to go do rap shows. It's going to be a very short off season. 
Well, this is the sport we chose. It has no off-season. We're going to be launching the GoFundMe, and then we're going to have to start our season like we've been doing with a research episode, so we've got to get on that. Oh, Lord. Okay. Yeah. So if you have any suggestions about research episodes that we should do, send them along. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We are the body serve. We now have a link tree. Go to www.linktree slash the body serve. You'll get links to all the places you can find us, where you can listen to us, where you can buy merch from us, where you can spy on Vince on social media, all that (laughs) other stuff. Okay. I don't know why I didn't think about that before, but thank you for setting that up. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.